Hello, I'm your host, Grayson Peralty. Welcome to another episode of SAE Tomorrow Today, a show about emerging technology and trends in mobility with the leaders and innovators who make it all happen. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Amy Ford, Vice President, Global Surface Transportation and Mobility Innovation Lead at Ecom. On today's episode, we'll discuss the changing EV charging infrastructure and how to prepare for those changes. We hope you enjoy this episode. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Grayson, for having me. We're excited to have you here because infrastructure will play a large role in the future of mobility. And as we saw with the Tesla Ford news, a lot is changing as it relates to the infrastructure of electrification. How is AECOM approaching this future mobility as things are changing on a rapid pace at a rapid scale? You know, I think the real answer is always about flexibility. And the reality is technology can and has always changed and evolved. And the rea- what you want to make sure that you're paying attention to is for what and for what end and for what purpose. And I think, you know, any company like an AECOM, the technologist, our state DOTs and others are constantly looking at what is the use case that defines how we are preparing our infrastructure for a world that is safer, one that is greener and more sustainable, and frankly, one a transportation system that builds quality of life for the people who are using it. And I think that's at the core of it always. And as the technology change, our capacity is to be nimble, to adaptable, thought leaders, frankly, and what's going to be happening and then how we prepare for that. Infrastructure in in traditional sense is heavy, it's large, and it lasts for, say, a building lasts for 100 years in some cases or small infrastructure. That's what we designed for. 10, 20 years. When the infrastructure designing it to last the test of time, how do you have that flexibility? Does that come down to planning or where does that flexibility come from? You know, it comes in a variety of different places, and I would say it actually comes in sort of three layers. When you start thinking about the transportation system and the ecosystem of your well of transportation, I like to sort of categorize it in three areas. First off, you're preparing this physical infrastructure layer, this, this layer that allows you to sort of carry the mobility and the people and the goods and the cargo that you need to be able to carry. And so how do you plan for that for a future? We do planning studies, we have travel assessments, we think about where people are going, we look at the data infrastructure, we look at trends and technology, and we do, as you noted, we plan for 25, 50, 100 years out, and that's our standard, right? We build to last. So that's one layer of what we have to do and how we think and prepare. The second layer, though, of how we think about infrastructure is planning really about the mobility services themselves. And that is where we have seen so much change and so much evolution of what's happening on the physical infrastructure. So when we talk about it, physical infrastructure, it's roads, it's asphalt, it's airports, it's how you think about runways, it's fiber, it's equipment that detect things and sensors and all of that. But the mobility layers themselves are really important too. How do people use these facilities? What are we doing with electrification with our vehicles? How are we completely shifting shared mobility? You know, things like Uber and Lyft, which didn't exist 15 years ago. How do we adjust in thinking about what we do with transit and how humans and cargo are moving and getting to where they need to be? That third layer that's come in in the 21st century, I think, is really about the digital layer. And so, you know, we sit and we talk nowadays about the fact that you need to have almost a digital infrastructure on top of that physical and those mobility services to be allow us to prepare for that future. And that is what's dynamic. So the idea that you have digital rules making that will eventually engage with an automated driving system or the capacity to assess your assets and others and to think about how you maintain and operate these systems through digital 
natural inferences, advanced accelerated AI and machine learning that helps you with all of this. So I'm saying a lot of words when we talk about that, but I think what you have to do is comprehensively put those three together. Prepare yourself out for how you think about those 100 years, 200, you know, capacity, but then actually create these layers that have flexible foundations, if you will. Digital infrastructure, is that, I'm going to use a very broad term, is it making something smart where there's connectivity or is there a lot more to that to the digital infrastructure you know when i think about digital infrastructure i think i think about it in three different ways you know the first is the rules making and almost the policy side of what we talk about when we talk about digital the idea that you have reference architectures the same way you do in software and others that allow us to think about how we interact with this physical world how we interact with the mobility services and how we impart some of that so how do I impart a digital speed limit, as an example, to let's say a vehicle who's wanting to use a roadway, a vehicle no longer that has a human driver. So there's that piece of it and almost creating the references, the architecture, the, the policies and the guidance that say, how do I wanna build equity into a pricing system or something like that? So that's one part. The second part I think of digital infrastructure is about data, essentially, the data architecture behind all of this. The idea, you know, I, I used to work for a Department of Transportation and we were going through and inventorying all of our data and our data assets. And I finally stopped counting it around, you know, 1,500, 2,000. And some of that data was housed on someone's computer in an Excel spreadsheet that had all of the GIS models of such and such in the state. And others were held in major data systems. But the data governance and the architecture and the platforms behind, I think that's the second part of data, digital infrastructure. The third part is the part I think that you were talking about. This idea of what I'm going to call the operational infrastructure, the digital environments, the sensors, the detectors, the, the engagement of how we look and improve the operations of our system, how we plan for it, how we look at the assets and where we maintain those. And I think when you put all three of those together, that's what digital infrastructure is. And not easy as we start to try to wrap our hands around all of it. As we wrap our hands around it, I'm going to go back to basics. You need infrastructure. You need a fiber backhaul to be able to mm -hmm. deliver all these services, especially if you're working with a client that's putting in a data center, if they're going to run an ML, or if you're working with a customer that needs uh, payments on their charging infrastructure, they're going to need some sort of connectivity there. How do you plan for all the need for fiber? Do you put larger conduit pipes into the infrastructure so as the devices, as I said, get smarter or you need to add on new services? you can run in more fiber in that conduit? Yeah, I mean, short answer is we deal in physical infrastructure and transportation, right? And so putting fiber into the ground is something that we do. And you you have states, for instance, Utah, take Utah, for example, every single highway project that they build, they put fiber in. They put it in, whether they pull it, whether it's dark fiber, whether they light it or not, they put fiber into those projects. Why? Because they knew for the future, the idea of connectivity and fiber was a critical element to how we are going to prepare for this future. And so you're seeing that happen all around the country where those kinds of fiber projects are happening. But equally so, those DOTs and others team with the private sector on how and when and where they pull that fiber. But I think you're starting to see additional layers, and this is about the future side of it. What's the interaction now of satellite Wi-Fi? Um, how do we engage with some of those capacities when we start thinking about how we deliver connected services, how we deliver the kind of information data that we need to manage these transportation systems. And so it's this combination now of something in the cloud to something in the ground to something that perhaps could even be in space in the future as we start thinking about connectivity. 
if you look at satellite, I'm going to call them Viasat. They they put them on the planes that we all travel on the on Viasat based out of yep. San Diego, California. Right. They have massive fiber backhaul going in going in there. So you still need that fiber mm-hmm. backhaul. The Utah DOT with fiber is absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. Why is that not a national standard from the U.S. Department of Transportation? That says okay, if you're going to dig up a road, lay dark fiber. Put conduit because we're going to need this at some point because you, when you're doing it, it's a lot cheaper to do it now than to go back 10 years from now. One, you're going to have a lot of angry motorists because the traffic. And two, you're going to have a lot of angry taxpayers because the money you're wasting. You're exactly right. It's like that dig once policy. And actually, you're seeing USDOT move in that direction where they're talking about dig once policies. In fact, in the recent infrastructure, the bill that was passed, you see some encouragement in that direction for that, for fiber projects. Obviously, there's a significant amount of funds that are dedicated to broadband build outs as a whole, not just within transportation, but through the Department of Agriculture and others, as we especially look at the gaps in, in you know, our connectivity and those fiber backhauls. And uh, so, so the short answer is yes, you see some DOTs continuing to pull that in. Of course, no surprise, always the issue is money and, you know, availability of funds. And, you know, if I'm laying X miles of fiber on top of a project that I need to get X more miles of asphalt in and sort of the balance of how I do all of that. So that's, that's sometimes what holds us back but you're seeing some of these programs coming in that are starting to support more and more of that. But you're right. Utah has been brilliant in that and frankly, a leader in that as uh, you know, for the last many years. Is Utah been building anything interesting using sensor technology or anything on top of the roads that have the fiber that are benefiting the residents of the state of Utah? Yeah, they have. And, you know, I think between Utah and you see states all across the country, Georgia, Colorado, um, you know, uh, Washington State, California and others, you're starting to see additional layers of what we traditionally called in transportation, intelligent transportation systems. And so what, you know, 10 and 20 years ago was those variable message boards that you would see out on the highway that would give you information, right? That was the point. It was to to impart information. Hey, slow down. Hey, there's a crash ahead. Look, the roads are icy, et cetera. Has now transitioned into a heavy, heavy layer of sensor-based information that it is a combination of hardware and software cloud computing, fiber backhaul, and transmitting that information to motorists and to truck drivers and to others that is a, is, is a conversation about what's happening on the roadway. And so in this space, for instance, is something what we call vehicle to everything or V to X kinds of technologies, which are essentially, so you see sensor detections of our weather systems, sensor detection and camera information about what's happening on the roadway in real time, crashes, for instance, on the road, sensor information on what's happening with travel speeds and travel information. This helps do things like control, for instance, the ramp meters, the lights that let you onto a highway or traffic, uh, you know, uh, traffic installations in, at intersections. And so all of this pulls together in how we then comprehensively manage the operations of a system in a corridor. So for instance, taking that data and information and being able to share it back out with uh, road users. How do we do that? Well, believe it or not, companies like Google and Here and Waze pull that third-party data into their streams, into their maps and that alert. It's also fed by crowdsourced data, for instance, with Waze that we've been doing. We take that data and it informs things like our traffic signal timing systems. And for every person who has sat and complained about, God, why am I sitting and waiting at this light, to know that historically you used to actually have a traffic engineer who would go out and sit and like monitor and manually count cars. Now we do that through data acquisition, you know, monitors and sensors that allow us to do things like not only better time those lights over time, but actually dynamically change the timing of those lights, those ramp meters and that kind of thing. 
So you see all of this pulling together and now how we sort of add these layers of data information and machine learning to better be able to create a safer, better roadway system. And it seems overall that it appeals to the driver, the consumer. When they're less time sitting at a traffic light, you have a happier motorist. Right, right. You know, it's funny. I used to I used to uh, say, and actually the city of Los Angeles did this years ago. They actually had a happiness meter. How happy are you with our transportation system? Like that was one of the key metrics that they wanted to look at with, do we make you happy? Are you satisfied? And of course, satisfaction in transportation is, I, every person is a traffic engineer, right? I mean, we all sit there and we go, <laughs> If I were, I live in Colorado, for instance, and every person who drives up to the uh, the mountains, every time they know that I work in transportation, I'm like, let me tell you how I'd fix this road. So we all have our ideas on what we do. But the reality is, is how do we improve quality of life? How do we make you happy? What does that mean? Is it sitting at a light and getting to where you need to go easily with ease, with, with simplicity? Is happiness about having accessibility to mobility and just be able to know where you can go and when? So I'm talking a lot about roads, but let's talk about data. For instance, it has transformed how people travel for, let's say, transit. The idea that you know where buses are at any given time and where they are on their schedules. That all came from data. And what that was was something called the General Transit Specification Feed, the GTFS. And Google actually created that. And I met with the engineer and she's like, I'm going to give it away. I'm going to give it away. And the moment she did that, it transformed how we actually look at transportation and accessibility. So you see things like that, that we really do to try to create that ease for customers. And that is a constant piece where people are looking at how do we improve our transportation systems. As we look at how we improve our transportation systems, we're clearly shifting to an, an all electric future. You go on Charger Help or, or Mary's Finney Sites and you see chargers are broken. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a common denominator across the board or they haven't figured out the energy back all you got six people charging you're, you're going to go slower than molasses and it doesn't work we have the inflation reduction act we have the infrastructure bill so money's flowing towards electrification for charging mm -hmm. a couple things here one how do we fix it and then two you've got the tesla four deal that's going to dramatically change things and all the infrastructure is going to have to be torn out and upgraded if another major oem goes the market's clearly shifted yeah, you know, I, I think there's a there's a two parter to that, right? You know, and as I sit and I think we look at electrification, uh, you know, when you think about the market and where it's moving, the percentage of cars, for instance, right now in the electrification market that are sold that are electric, we're at about about five to eight percent sort of nationally in the last year or so of electric vehicles that have been sold. And it's actually rapidly accelerating. And why it's accelerating, of course, is because also investment in how we build out the infrastructure. You know, how do we create the gas stations of the 21st century, right, for our electric vehicles? And um, whether you're charging at home or whether you're charging in the infrastructure itself. And um, and so, yes, both both bills, actually, the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law created something called the NEVI program, which is a national electrification infrastructure uh, effort. And that every state in the country has a NEVI plan. So in other words, they have a plan that says this is how we are going to electrify in our state. This is where we're going to go. This is where we're going to put charging stations and how we do that. And they are now all in the mode of starting to think about how they program manage it, how they procure it. And inevitably, the way this works is they team with a private partner um, who goes in and then manages those corridors, those installations, and how they put all of that together. And so as they get into this, there is a combination of things. So there are levels of service and up 
uptime that they need to have and how we do all of this. And so just like any system, it's easy to build something. It's much harder to maintain and operate it, right? And so there are expectations that those private partners are maintaining and operating what's happening with the entire system. But I think as we get going into this, the 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 workforce who are trained, who can do that work, the capacity that we have in the um in the service structure of that is something that's really important. And, and knowing that information as a consumer is also the second important thing. So back to data information, how do I take that data? How do I feed that into my digital infrastructure? How do I feed that into my Google Maps or others so they can say, hey, here's where a charging station is. Hey, I've got four that are being used right now. We've got three that are available and how that information is imparted to the consumers. So I, so I think all of this is a very emerging and continuing to grow market, but you're gonna see it happening all around the country. In fact, the, com- the the state that is leading right now and is the most active and has the most from zero to beginning of uh, electric chargers is Oklahoma. So, so you see quite a bit of effort. They're very proud of that fact, actually, and how they look at things right now. So, um, so yeah, electrification is absolutely growing. But let me pivot then to the second piece of this, what you just said. So there was a big announcement here just in the last, uh, you know, recently, where Ford says that they are actually adopting the Tesla standard for charging. And, you know, right now, so the federal government just finished a rules making that mandated the certain standards that you put into these charging stations. And to qualify for those NEVI funds that I was mentioning before, you have to do these certain types of chargers for DC fast charging and others. And um, it's fair to say that Tesla is not on that system. It's not the same. In fact, Tesla has been having conversations with the US government about how they open up their charging systems to the general public as opposed to just Tesla owners. And um, so if you start seeing the market shift to a certain standard, um, you may have a point where you have to, to regroup and reassess, go back in, change some of the infrastructure investment that's currently being made right now. What happens when another major global OEM signs on? There's analyst reports to back this up. There's a lot of industry chatter to back this up. It just seems that the J standard goes the way of the dinosaur. I think that's certainly a very possible uh, reality. And, you know, I mean, it's not uncommon that we have that happen in a variety of things related to technology. I mean, we've talked about it. You know, it's the Betamax VHS issue. It's, you know, how we go and sort of what what consumers deem as the winner. And, um, you know, I think the interesting part about investment, especially in transportation, is we, we, we fit ourselves in physical investment, right? I mean, we plan for investment. But at the same time, we also plan for upgrades because that's the very nature of the business. So, you know, we plan to upgrade those video cameras that we put out onto the roads five years ago because there's a newer and better technology that's attached to that. And so I think that you have to have that in the planning process. Um, And it's something that I think all of us are starting to think about. We experienced that in connected technologies with vehicles as well, where you started having different standard development um, coming through. Um, I think, again, back to the core question that we said at the beginning of this podcast, how do you create flexibility in this when you're putting something in the ground? And there's no easy answer to it. um, But I think the reality is, is that you plan sort of the core service side of it, the bell, the backhaul the electrification, the power, et cetera, and then how you start moving through. And then frankly, you create dynamic contracts with different providers. So if I'm working with the private provider, I actually would put into this sort of future ready on tech. And so ask them to bid in the idea that they are going to be doing upgrades and engagement with the technology or even with their with their infrastructure as they move forward. Let's say if they have a 10 or a 20 year contract, let's say with a DOT to input these uh, to put these devices into the roadways. Okay, so we're going to go farther. Let's just say Mercedes, Hyundai, Kia 
and VW all jump in. You probably got what's with Tesla. You probably got over seventy percent of the EV market yep. in the United States based on yep. on vehicles. So say, okay, this is where we're going. Then do you have to partner with your customers and say, okay, you have to go rip out all the Electrify America, all the charge point, and basically put Tesla ones in, or do you have to go all the way back to the Siemens Hitachi energy level and rebuild? Where does that rebuild process start? The answer is yes. And that's, I'm not punting deliberately, but the answer is yes on all points of those. So you have to go back to the actual tech development right now, obviously proprietary uh proprietary technology and the charging systems that Tesla has. And so they they have sort of cornered their own market. They were early adopters. They built out their own national network to begin and have been doing so across, you know, the country and frankly, the world. And um, so you have to go back into the, the standards-based side uh, of this and redevelop some of those standards. You have to go into the technology development side and reassess that. And then you have to go into the procurement side of these programs and you have to reassess those and actually either A, go into a new procurement round that actually asks for a switch out or a rebuild, or you've already had a procurement process. Like for instance, you're right at the very point right now with state DOTs, for instance, where they are actually in the process of procuring or energy offices around the country, procuring the corridor developments of the install. If I were they at this point in time, I would certainly be advising that they have a built-in future ready piece to look at new technology transition if they haven't done that already. Some, a lot of them tend to do that. And, um, and then I would be leaving a few open bays uh, for some other charging systems, that's for sure. And I know that sounds trite, but the reality is, is that, yeah, I, and I think we we see this all the time where we have wholesale transitions of technology standards, right? So it, it is going to be a part of it. But back to taxpayer dollars, your point was brought up earlier, you know, how can we create efficiency with our taxpayer dollars? Yeah, you have to build in good models to be able to do that from standards to private partnerships to technology partnerships to procurement standards, and then ongoing O&M standards. I'm going to say something that's not popular, you have to hit the pause button, because we don't know this is going to dramatically change. I'll give you Obviously, over the next three months, you're probably going to have another another announcement or, or Elon will bring somebody on for a Twitter space. Mm-hmm. And the market's going to change. So it's just you might as well pause for three months. As, as long as Twitter space doesn't doesn't it starts to stutter. But, uh, you know, but we'll get there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The engineer resigned on that one. You hit the pause button, in my opinion. So here you are. So from the AECOM standpoint, you're advising Arizona on the deployment of electric vehicle charging. That state is booming. You have a yep. lot of individuals that are moving there. It's historically known as, as a retirement state, but it's, it's very booming with all the, the development. And I have to give the governor and the state legislature a lot of credit for what they've done for manufacturing jobs. Right. Arizona's done a tremendous job creating manufacturing jobs, which are very sticky jobs mm-hmm. in, in the Phoenix-Glendale region. So here's that ecom. You're advising the state on the rollout of EV charging. Do you advise them to pause? Or you just say, okay, state, let's build conduit, fiber conduit, energy conduit let's start to source the energy needs and then by the time we source that we get the permitting then we could see where the market is or how do you go about that yeah so you're right so we helped the state develop that nevi plan so and a part of that was really an analysis about where to be honest so where do we do this where do we put this where is the proliferation if you will of the ev charging systems so where do they need to go within the state from rural to urban etc and how do you match that with what's already been happening private investment or otherwise and so now you're moving into the program management process right and so a state like arizona you're right which has been incredibly forward on manufacturing chips manufacturing obviously you've been all paying attention to that what they're doing with the um 
autonomous vehicles obviously rolls right into Arizona, literally and figuratively uh, on a number of different deployments, et cetera. And as they move into the nevy pieces of this, um, I think our advice and engagement with them is on, on three fronts. Number one, as you're moving to procure, and I, this is such a sexy topic on a podcast to talk about procurement and contracts, but, <laughs> but, but frankly, it governs so much of what we want to do. If I'm coming in and I want to work with a private partner, so pick any, pick any one of the big players, you know, and I, we don't need to name them all, but what I'm doing is I'm actually creating an expectations about outcomes with them. I'm just saying, here's what I need. I need you to be ready. I need you to facilitate X amount of the fleet. I need it to be, I need you to be able to do a technology upgrades on what's happening with our charging systems. And I need you to prepare for that. Tell me how you are going to do that. And that's the kind of request for proposal that I put out. So then it is to that private partner to come back and say, okay, I am going to do this. I am going to put in this type of equipment now. And in five years, I'm going to go to a blended uh, blended st- uh, st- stock of equipment that does X. And then I'm going to shift to such and such as it goes to Y as we start seeing uh, market penetration of these kinds of vehicles, et cetera. Or I'm going to partner with Tesla on their tar- charging stations already because we're going to be opening those up to such and such. So, so again, like I said, sexy topic procurement, but that's how I do it. So do I need a pause not necessarily. What I'm doing is I'm planning in for change. And so that that is how I would advise those clients to be able to look at it. Because the reality is, is you're still continuing to see these purchases. You're still continuing to want to see the rapid rise, the engagement of electric vehicles, for instance, in the U.S. I have resources and dollars that need to be spent. And so that is part of the other things. There's expectations about how those dollars are being spent and when. And um, But I think that I can I'm not going to say future-proof it because there's no such thing as future-proofing anything, um, but future-readying it and preparing for that partnership is how it, how it would work. How do you ready it for an energy perspective? Are you getting some off the grid, energy from grid, some from being in Arizona? You can get hydropower. Perhaps you can get a solar backup or you're, perhaps if it's a large depot, you're advising your clients to put a microgrid in, for example. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is where we get into the the power generation and the grid preparedness, if you will, of of what we're doing with the electrification future. And um, and so this is not simply about going in and putting in, you know, quote unquote, your gas station, your charging system. This is about an entire ecosystem of collaboration that includes the utilities. And as you can imagine, and all around the country, the utilities are very engaged in this process. Um, And, uh, you know, from from states like Arizona to, you know, Duke Energy and the East Coast, Across the board, you see heavy, heavy engagement. So it is about the transmission lines that go to these um, facilities. It's about, and and we're talking about charging stations, for instance, that might be located, for instance, collaboration at a come and go, as an example, which is very active in the space and what they're doing, to how you're handling that in buildings, to how you're handling that in people's homes. And so so as you're building this infrastructure, um, that, that relationship is really really critically important. So do we have the backhaul necessary? Do we have the transmission, uh, the power grid uh, that's necessary? I think we all recognize right now that the power grid is probably undersized for the future of electrification. And that would be like a whole other podcast. We could get into that. But um, 
But those are the discussions that we continue to have. And so when we work with a client, for instance, as an example, we are doing all of that planning for them. So it is all the way from how do you look at your, your, your charging systems as to where they would go? How do we position this for, you know, for people and their travel and sort of the distance behind between charges to what is the power that we need to have to facilitate these particular locations? And then as you're working with other folks, how do we look at the fleet transition? How am I working with a transit agency and transitioning your fleet? to electric buses, as an example. Do you have the facilities? Do you have the maintenance team members? Do you have the others? What does that look like when you're all of a sudden charging 60 buses at the same time? How does that work? How do you stagger your charging? So all of this ecosystem comes together when we talk about this electrification future. And so it's not just about me and you buying a Tesla or a Ford, you know, F-150 Lightning or something like that. There's a lot happening. You know, an example of some of the stuff we're working is with the United States Postal Service, for instance, as they are going through and completely transitioning their fleet now. And so you're seeing a lot moving in the space that is really dynamic and um and that as you noted has a lot of different players that are really critical and it all goes back to the goal of decarbonization and so when you brought up things like solar and wind and microgrids and stuff that's another piece of this equation right is you know a lot of people will talk about electrification not really being clean depending on the original power sources, if you will, or even the production of a vehicle and such. And that is a continued effort and discussion too about where power is even sourced from. Do you run into a scenario where you have, let's call Acme customer that wants to either put uh, a depot for buses or for delivery vehicles, or even a customer that has perhaps say a shopping mall that wants to put charging in, but there's not enough energy backhaul and you have to have that tough conversation with them where I'm sorry, customer, Mr. And Mrs. Customer, there, there's not enough energy and then walk them through. Do you ever have those tough conversations? You know, I think the short answer is I don't think we've encountered where we completely have to say no, that it's not possible yet. Um, but we absolutely have to have conversations through and with the utilities to talk about where it is and where we source it. And can it be self-generated power? So back to your point about microgrids and others, what are the opportunities to create the energy portfolio that actually makes it happen? And so this, is, you know, it's, you can imagine we and many others sit and have these conversations with uh, with folks all the time. And it, and up and down, up and down this ecosystem right now, you see active discussions. And this is where, again, back to the, you know, the, the, the infrastructure laws, for instance, that were recently passed and why you see so much investment happening in the spaces. Dollars are flowing into the space that try to sort of tackle at each of those levels. It's not perfect. And it's not enough, but it, which sounds crazy after we're talking about billions and billions of dollars. But it is really shaping and reshaping what we're seeing in a transportation system right now, especially in how we approach this. And I, and I say transportation, we qualify that transportation and energy ecosystem as they come together. Do the utilities even generate enough energy to support this? And I'm really concerned if you look at historically California, for example, Arizona's neighbor has rolling blackouts. Right. And you have the PG&E problems, which we don't need to get into, that are vast and ongoing. Do they even generate enough energy? If you look at the Colorado River, you're not getting as much hydropower anymore. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, they, they can't get energy out of the sea. That's a whole nother podcast. It just seems that there's an energy imbalance growing that's not really being tackled. Yeah, you know, and I am certainly not an expert in all of this. And but I could say that I think that we've everyone's acknowledged the fact that there are challenges when it comes to um, to to sort of energy production, clean 
and renewable energy production. And I, and I think that's that's a big part to that. You know, we know that we have renewable projects that are sitting right now who would like to come online, but there's not the, not that the, the grid can't quite handle it coming online yet. So we know we have a portfolio of stuff that's sitting in there, whether it's in California or frankly, all around the country. And, um, and so, so again, you're, you're talking about all of these layers. So you've got the, the core grid capacity and what that is and sort of a, system that is in need of upgrade and and you're starting to see movements towards that you're seeing the layered expectation about renewable projects that are wanting to come online that you see investment and readiness and willingness to happen and then you, you see the users of it i.e the electrification process that you know for vehicles and cars and all that and so yeah as you put all of these pieces together i think you're you know we're having some very hard conversations you're seeing a lot of investment moving in that direction whether or not it is fast enough to get ready for the mandates that are coming, i.e. in California, the mandates about no longer selling, you know, internal combustion engine for light duty vehicles and now also for heavy duty other states and others are following suit. So again, you know, when we talk about sort of this broad economic pattern too, back to the investment and what's happening in the country, you see a, this is this is a space that will continue to grow and change and be invested in for a very for for a good chunk of time. Because why? We are moving towards a clean future period. And I think that that, that, that train has left the station and it's about how we all get on board, about how we put together the ecosystem that really builds the tracks and the infrastructure that supports it. You're right. We're moving. I think a lot about this. Would we be having this conversation today if Tesla never introduced the Model 3 and it never scaled the way it did? It's funny. My husband and I actually have this conversation. We happen to have a <laughs> Tesla and we were talking about it uh, recently and we were like, what Tesla did and what Elon Musk did and, you know, however people feel, you know, about sort of him and companies and all these kinds of things is he made electric cool. And, and he made it something that people saw and said, I want that. And, and that was, that was sort of a tipping point, I think, in, in, in how people started viewing electrification. They saw it in an everyday car that could make sense. And with the Model 3, I think certainly that was, that was the transition point. And, you know, when you sort of look at the scale, I mean, electrification wasn't new. You know, I can go back 20 and 30 and 40 years ago where we were looking at electric vehicles and we were seeing the potential of where they could go. But the idea of it becoming a, a mass market kind of item, that is, that was the tipping point. And that is where, you know, wherever Tesla goes in the future. And as now you are starting to see, you know, I always used to comment about this, you know, companies like Ford and GM and others, you know, they, they have this, this battleship, right? This, this not, not just even battleship, but this dynamic, nimble, you know, company. But we're talking about aircraft carriers. But once you've turned that aircraft carrier you now have a freaking aircraft carrier that is moving in that direction. And so now you have this kind of energy that's moving around that with the entire market that has shifted. And, you know, I mean, people who are no longer going to build internal combustion engine vehicles, period. So I think the short answer is yes. I think they had a powerful, powerful play in how they really moved this entire, this entire space. Fast forward today, the, the Tesla Model Y is the best-selling car in America, and it just that. continues to sell, and you read the reviews. People love their Teslas. Mm -hmm. Putting all the pieces of the mobility pie together, what is the value proposition for AECOM clients? Why do they call you? 
you know, so people call ACOM and just to just to set level set, you know, so, you know, for people who are unfamiliar, you know, we have large infrastructure consulting firms uh, you know, all around the world. And ACOM is one of the largest in the world. We have over 55,000 people who work in the United States and in Asia and Europe and in the Middle East and uh, and are solely focused on the idea of building infrastructure, building the world that matters and it allows us to do to, to be to live our lives, whether that is roadway infrastructure and transportation, like what we're talking about, whether it's your buildings and your places, whether it is creating, you know, the beneficial environmental systems and the infrastructure that really allows us to sort of live and to work and to play. And with with that, when we sit and we think about the mobility ecosystem, the the, the reality is that an ACOM really looks at how we put all of those pieces together and working with our public sector clients as well as our private sector clients to see this future. So whether it is looking into how we source and create energy to developing offshore wind and projects that we would build that to how we bring that energy into, let's say, a port and how we facilitate the movement of goods and uh, goods and services at a, at a port and how you design and, and create those create those port facilities to how you turn around and ship something over to an airport to how you would think about out, creating that layer of transportation services from the built infrastructure, but in there also to the mobility services side. So every piece of transportation, obviously, we touch. And so whether it's aviation to logistics, to roadways, to transit, to rail, to, to energy development and to offshore wind, and we, we put all of those pieces together. But the reality is, is it is always focused, again, about the people and the goods that we are able to move. And so it's not just about the design and the engineering of these services, which is the good core of what we do, right? How do you plan and, and do all of that? So it is, you know, hundreds of thousands, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of engineers behind the scenes who are sitting and doing the design of that bridge and of that particular, let's say, vertiport that we are going to bring your advanced air mobility vehicle into, into the future. But it is how we sort of prepare people for what's today how we build for what's tomorrow, things like advanced air mobility, and then how you ready for the future. How do we take what's happening in AI and how do we think about that and what that means now for how we engage and how people move and how goods and services move and how do we incorporate that into a physical infrastructure that we might choose to build. So those are the kinds of services that we provide and that we work with people on. And, you know, it's 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 a really fascinating thing because you have thought leaders who are really ready for what that today is and how we build that and ultimately how we go into building and planning for that future. I like the line building. The world makes it better. I like that, Amy. And as we look to wrap up this insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them today? You know, I think that that even with an infrastructure, when we think about something that we plan for, that we try to build to last, is that we are always looking at how we build the flexibility in to how we build something to last. And that's the exciting part, I think, with SAE and with others, is that it's that constant what's next evaluation on how we think about this future. And we don't sit and we don't stay still in regards to where we think that we've done. And by gosh, we've got the best standard or we created the most perfect design on a bridge and that's it, we're done. We've sunk it in concrete and we never go back and explore that and we take it forward. The beautiful thing with infrastructure 
even as we build to last, is that we always build to continue to create and to shape and to reform and to always do that with the end in mind, which is that customer. What is it that they need that can really make them safer in our roadways and our systems and our transportation systems? What is it that we can do that we make this world greener? And how do we really deliver this better world that really delivers that quality of life that the transportation system underpins for everyone? Stay focused on what's next. Today is tomorrow. Tomorrow is today. The future is planning and being flexible. Amy, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thank you so very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.